Chapter 2 New Zealand and Owen Owen was an intellectual, academic, kind and loving man. What he saw in me I'll never know. As a talks producer and then on secondment to television as a drama producer, he mixed with and met actors, writers, poets and people from a world of which I longed to be a part. At Television Centre, Owen was charged with producing The Grass is Singing by Doris Lessing. The play starred a very good-looking actor called Walter Brown, who seems to have disappeared from the acting scene. Through Owen, I met people from his exciting and stimulating world. We saw the musical Oliver and went backstage because Owen knew the actor John Bluthel, who played the part of Fagin. At one dinner gathering, I met the poet Ted Hughes, although he didn't have the acclaim then, he now posthumously enjoys. I was frightened witless and hardly opened my mouth. It was all heady stuff. I remained largely on the periphery of discussions, not having the intellectual background to feel I could make any worthwhile contributions. But I sat, listened and absorbed the information like a sponge. Owen had an MA in French and studied music to B-Muzz level at Canterbury College in New Zealand. While working as a radio announcer, he won a bursary to continue his studies in musical composition at the Conservatoire in Paris. He fell in love with Paris and had a great love of France and the French, and today he is a naturalised French citizen. Recently, I emailed him to check on a few facts of our life together, and asked why he'd not continued his musical studies. His reply was, I decided that I wasn't up to European standards and also to return to New Zealand, but not before seeing something of Europe ending up in England. I landed a post as a BBC Talks producer and fatefully crossed paths with a cute, fairy-like talk secretary in Broadcasting House, moi, me. Owen loved planning trips and wanted to introduce me to the delights of France. So we took his little frog-eyed sprite down to Lyd in Kent and loaded it onto a plane to Le Touquet. From there we drove south. I'll never forget my first experience of French hospitality. It was only a relais routier at which we stayed. Mine host apologised for the frugality of his table, but explained that we had arrived quite late. The frugal meal comprised an hors d'oeuvre of so many different delicacies. It was a meal in itself. We feasted on artichoke hearts, oysters, marinated mushrooms, haricot vert, and so much else that the main course was superfluous. On our travels, we encountered an old man by the roadside sporting the traditional French beret and distilling mar the rough brandy made from what's left of the grape skins after the wine's been pressed. The locals brought their residue to him and he processed it. Under EU rules, this practice is not acceptable and has virtually disappeared, though a few die-hard old Frenchmen ignore the rules and continue plying their trade. We were making our way slowly to Paris, where we were to stay for a couple of days. There is a song. April in Paris, which talks of chestnuts in blossom and romance under the stars. It was spring, the chestnuts were in blossom, and romance hung heavily in the air. I even found romance in what I call the threepenny bit green and gold cups from which many Parisians drink their café crème halfway through the morning. 
We raced around Paris trying to buy some, but they were only on sale to the catering trade. We made do instead with a rather naff couple of cups sporting the words moi, toi, nous deux in gold on the coffee pot. I have so much for which to thank Owen, not least my enduring love affair with France. On our return journey, we were overjoyed when the plane took off and the sun came first through the window on one side of the plane and then through the other side. There was fog at Lyd, the plane couldn't land and we had to spend another night in what was now our beloved France. Owen had always intended returning to his native New Zealand, taking the production experience he'd gained at the BBC back to the fledgling New Zealand Broadcasting Commission. Now he was going to take me with him. My divorce hadn't come through, but that didn't matter. If it had, maybe Owen and I would have married. Although he no longer practised his religion, Owen's parents were staunch Catholics. We didn't want to hurt them, and I didn't want to go to New Zealand bearing my married name. So for the princely sum of 12 and 10 pence, about 65p, I changed my name by deed poll to Leeming. And Owen told his parents that when we arrived in New Zealand, my name would be his. It was the truth, sort of. They made the assumption that we'd married quietly before leaving England. In the 60s, a plane journey to the other side of the world was a lengthy affair. You didn't do it in one or two legs like nowadays. Apart from anything else, planes simply didn't have the capacity to fly enormous distances without refuelling. We flew KLM and at every meal we were given delicious handouts of Dutch chocolate. These were to act as currency when we had to stop at Delhi. We disembarked at the airport to be driven to an hotel to freshen up and rest before the next stage of the journey. I shall never forget the beggars and poverty there. I saw a way of life about which I was totally ignorant. At the hotel, we were waited on by an old Indian who looked careworn and tired out, as though he should have been at home with his feet up, being pampered by his grandchildren. We had absolutely no Indian money on us with which to tip him, so I left behind all my accumulated chocolate bars and hoped he would appreciate them and understand. Our next stop was Bangkok, where we were to stay for a few days. My introduction to theatre had been a production of The King and I at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. When I was 11, Lady Lowen, the wife of my father's army boss, took me to a matinee performance with tea and cake in the interval. I'd fallen under the spell of the theatre at that performance. Suddenly, here I was. The sets had come alive. The temples, the tinkling of the temple bells in the wind, the vibrant colours, the smells, the noise. Bangkok had a magic despite the traffic and the pollution. We stayed in a small guest house, clean and comfortable with no frills, and that included no air conditioning. It was the lack of the latter that led me to being confined to bed for several days. I hadn't been drinking enough liquid and went down with a case of heat exhaustion. I thought I was going to die. Nora Boylan, my speech and drama mistress in England, had given us an introduction to a friend, a ballet dancer, who in turn introduced us to Jimmy Thompson. Jimmy was an American who stayed on in Thailand after the war. He single-handedly got the Thai silk industry onto a commercial footing. He was a fascinating man who ran a good, successful business and kept the creation of his wonderful silks 
very much a cottage industry. He took us on a tour of his silk village, which was close to the Chowfriar River, so the huts were all on stilts. The employees and their families lived in the huts and worked on the premises where all the spinning, dyeing and weaving of the cloth took place. I remember huge baskets filled with the most glorious coloured silk wound around bobbins. Jimmy would help the workers decide on colours for the individual pieces they were to weave. He gave me a length in muted shades of green. How I wish I'd kept it as a simple stole, but I had it made into a dress which eventually wore out. Jimmy invited us to dinner at his home, a combination of several old Thai houses blended together to form the most extraordinary dwelling. Jimmy was a great lover of Thailand and his fortune had allowed him to amass a wonderful collection of antique artefacts beautifully displayed throughout his home. He cared so much for his adopted home, he'd willed everything to the state as a permanent memorial to his love for that country. I remember he sent his car for us. I'd never been chauffeur-driven before, and though it was an experience, I was absolutely frozen in its air-conditioned splendour. Many years later, while reading a magazine at the hairdressers, I saw an article about Jimmy Thompson's mysterious disappearance. He'd just walked into the jungle and was never seen again. As far as I know, the mystery was never solved and his body was never found. Rumours were rife. Was he involved in politics? Had he displeased someone? We'll never know, but I do treasure my meeting with him. We took a trip down the Chow Friar River, which runs through Bangkok. What an experience that was. Thais live on and by the river. They drink and bathe in it. The river is the centre and mainstay of their lives. Along the waterfront houses, we saw coffins where the relations were still paying homage years after a death and the deceased hadn't been interred. We visited the lovely beach resort of Pattaya, lined only with a few beach bungalows and bougainvillea. When I see pictures of the resort in today's brochures, I thank God I saw it and a few other places in the world before they were spoilt by wall-to-wall skyscraper hotels bowing to the tourist industry. Today, we're familiar with the four corners of the globe. Without leaving our homes, we're taken on magic carpet rides around the world via holiday programs and intrepid reporters. But in the early 60s, these wonders were a well-kept secret. I was astounded at the beauty of the temples in Bangkok. They rose in magnificent splendor from the otherwise drab surroundings. Their roofs were bright orange fringed with green, and everywhere you heard the tinkling of the temple bells. My overriding memory was of the Temple of the Emerald Buddha. The Buddha himself was almost insignificant as he sat on top of a pile of gifts. There was a stack about six foot high with chairs, grandfather clocks, boxes, vases, gifts of every description left in the hope of intercession with the Lord. It looked like a junk shop on a bad day. There were incongruities everywhere in Bangkok. On a busy street, we stopped at a shack of corrugated iron strung between two buildings and open to the elements. Having admired some of the pretty things on sale, we started bargaining for a gold-coloured metal belt. We couldn't understand why the price was so high until we realised the belt was pure gold. And though we didn't have that kind of money, the cost was surprisingly low. 
Who would have expected a street vendor to be trading pure gold in a street with open sewers? That's the East for you. We also went to the cinema and had to stand for about 10 minutes at the end while the national anthem was played. Every time we thought it had finished, they struck up another verse and everyone stood stock still and respectful. We had hoped to visit the temple of Angkor Wat, but there was a border war with Burma and no foreigners were allowed into the area. Instead, we visited the ruins of one of the many ancient capitals of Thailand, Ayudhya, and encountered something I found difficult to accept, the rickshaw coolies. I'm not comfortable with a man taking the place of a beast. Our rickshaw boy was a man of indeterminate age and emaciated. Going up a slight incline, he appeared to be struggling, so I hopped off the rickshaw and walked with him. I didn't realise how much I must have hurt his pride. From Bangkok, we took another plane to Australia. We touched down at Darwin to let off some passengers and to enable a very large Australian with hairy legs, shorts and knee-length white socks to debug the plane with a can of spray. This was supposed to blitz any foreign bodies we might have picked up en route. Next stop was Sydney and a change of planes. I was doing some shopping when the terminal announcer drawled in broadest Aussie, the next plane to Mudgee and Dubbo is about to depart. What improbable names they were. I was just buying a toy koala bear and promptly christened it Mudgee. He lives with me still. From Sydney, we flew to Melbourne and a stay with Owen's old university friend, Professor David Moody, and his wife Pippa. I thought they were the height of sophistication and their lifestyle was so much more grand than anything I'd experienced in England. I was very impressed with what little I saw of Australia. I suppose we were both a trifle apprehensive as we left Australia for Christchurch, New Zealand and the meeting with Owen's family. Mother, father, brothers, sister were all over us at the airport, totally open, warm and friendly people who welcomed me with open arms. I think they imagined Owen to be a confirmed bachelor, so this addition to the family was doubly welcome, which made me feel even worse about our deception. We stayed with the family for days of partying and for Owen, renewing acquaintances. It was then that the first pangs of homesickness hit me. I wasn't pining for England, but I was apprehensive about this huge step of having come halfway across the world to a country and a people who, though they spoke the same language, had an entirely different culture. I walked down the main street of Christchurch, looked in the windows of a millinery shop and cried. It wasn't that I wore hats a great deal. It was just that everything seemed so old fashioned and about 20 years behind the times. Those I met were very kindly, but I found the New Zealanders rather insular. I didn't have long to wallow because Owen, ever the adventurer, arranged a trip taking in most of New Zealand's South Island. The Maori name for New Zealand translate as the land of the long white cloud and the country has an example of every kind of landmass in the world. Mountains, glaciers, lakes, thermal regions, deserts, plains and fjords make it a stunningly beautiful place. We stayed at the Hermitage on Mount Cook and made a trip to the Fox Glacier, where we had an eerie and potentially dangerous experience. A guide took a party of us on to and around an area of the glacier. I remember huge waves of frozen water, 
looking down cracks and seeing lakes of brightest blue, hearing cracking noises all around us. The experience was awesome. When we got back to our hotel, Owen realised he'd put down his glasses while he took a photograph. I remembered him taking them off and felt sure I could find them. We were totally stupid in going back without a guide, but we did and we found the glasses. The noise of the ice cracking all around us was frightening. Just think, we might have ended up coming out at the end of the glacier round about 60 years later, frozen solid. Ode was to take up a position as a producer with the New Zealand Broadcasting Commission, the NZBC, at Wellington in the North Island. So we bade goodbye to the family and took the boat from Christchurch to Wellington. Wellington is very impressive when approached from the sea, with the harbour surrounded by high hills. It's an extremely windy city, to the point that sometimes it blows so strongly you're unable to turn a corner from one street to another. Initially, we rented a small house at Lower Hutt, just north of Wellington. Owen had been to university with many of the people who were now working in the field of broadcasting, so for him, it was familiar territory. One evening, we had his boss and wife, a glamorous model, to dinner. At that stage of my life, I wasn't a particularly good cook and had done no entertaining. I was desperately overambitious. Remembering a lovely dinner in London where the Italian mama of our opera-singing host cooked a whole fish in foil, I decided to do the same. I'd no idea how long it needed cooking or that you prodded it with a fork to test whether it was done. I served it and suffered the embarrassment of finding it still raw in the middle. As far as I was concerned, the evening went rapidly downhill. I'd also been far too ambitious with the dessert and attempted a chocolate souffle, Souffle is not a dish for the beginner. The meal was pretty awful and I was absent from the table most of the evening. Now I only serve recipes I've tried out first and I simplify my meals into cold starter, warm middle and cold dessert. That way I get to talk to the guests. Owen was at work all day and I couldn't drive, so Lower Hut was a bit of a no-no for me. We soon moved into Wellington proper. 56 Salamanca Road, Kelburn. It was situated close to the top of the funicular railway. We had a ghastly landlady who knocked on our door one day and told me the reason I had so many colds was that my underwear was scanty. Scanty it was, but that was not the cause of my ill health. I'd had asthma as a child until my tonsils were taken out at the age of seven. The asthma went, but I've been heavily prone to colds and throat infections all my life. I wanted and needed to work, so Owen encouraged me to phone the head of the NZBC. Miraculously, I was given an appointment. I can just imagine trying to do that in England. You'd never get through the smokescreen of secretaries and PAs, a bit like trying to see a doctor today. I must have been a good talker because all I had to my credit were reams of certificates for poetry speaking and drama, a fair amount of amateur theatrical experience and a great deal of enthusiasm. I was given a tryout doing presentation for television on Sunday evenings. I think my fee was five pounds. Such riches had to be supplemented by clerical work during the week, but it was experience and that's something money can't buy. The equipment was very Heath Robinson. I remember having to flick a switch on the desk when given a signal in order to fade in my microphone. 
At the time, I was also doing some modelling. I had applied to the Lucy Clayton Modelling School when in London, but in England, a model had to be five foot seven. The New Zealanders were traditionally a shorter race and five foot five for a model was acceptable. I was five foot five in those days. I've shrunk. I'm now five foot three. I could also do photographic and hand modelling. I did some hat modelling too. And after a particularly difficult session, the photographer offered me a drink. I accepted and drank several martini cocktails, not realising just how potent they were. I was trying to be grown up. For a while, I wondered why he didn't use me again, but then I did knock over his highly expensive camera as I exited. Owen was working at the NZBC for a living, but was producing drama at the Victoria University Drama Club for fun. One of his productions was Aristophanes' Lysistrata. Although the play is a great and ageist comedy, it's primarily concerned with the issue of war and peace and not as it seems on the surface, with sex. It says, with logic and power, that the personal lives of men and women are of a higher value than the impersonal demands of the state. The plot centres around the women of Athens and Sparta, who get so fed up with their men going to war, they eventually withhold all conjugal rights until the men stop fighting. I auditioned for and got the part of a sexy little piece called Nerini, the play it is a riot of double meanings and was great fun to do. Priapic men and scantily clad women racing over the stage must have rocked dreamy old Wellington to its foundations. The English department at the university put on a production of Arnold Wesker's Roots and I played the part of Jenny Beals. The producer decided that Jenny had to be overweight so I was padded for the role. Although the two productions at the university were not strictly professional productions, they were of an extremely high standard. One could draw a comparison with the standard of the English Ouds, Oxford University Drama Society, and Footlights, the Cambridge equivalent. I learned a great deal. My 21st birthday arrived while we were in Wellington. As we'd only lived there for a few months, we didn't know enough people to throw a party. Owen wrote me a beautiful poem, which was later published in an anthology, bought me a fox first stole, I no longer wear fox, and thoroughly abhor the practice, but I was young and didn't think about the suffering. And then he took me out to dinner at the best restaurant our finances would bear. Owen was my guru and brought so very much into my life. He was forever opening doors to new, interesting and intellectual experiences forever encouraging me to push back the boundaries I imposed on myself by my own self-doubt and insecurity. But something in the relationship wasn't quite right. Then it happened. I was chatted up by my hairdresser. Not an unusual scenario for women. Bob Whitting was a charming man of Dutch origin who'd been through awful experiences as a child with his mother in a concentration camp. He wore dark glasses all the time not as an affectation, but because his eyes had suffered due to the poor diet in the camp. The glasses gave him a mysterious allure. We embarked on a passionate affair, somewhat lacking in conversation. Owen knew about it, but with his usual maturity and wisdom, let me get on with it. He was also playing around, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander, so to speak. I'm sure he thought it would just be a fling, and then I'd come to my senses and return to him. 
It was at this stage that my normal mousy hair became very dramatic. Bob entered a hairdressing competition and dyed my hair blue-black with cyclamen overtones. I liked the result, and though I shed the cyclamen rinse, stayed with the blue-black for 20 years until wisdom dictated that a lighter colour would be more befitting my ageing skin tones. I got myself into a total mess with the two men. I knew a long relationship with Bob was out of the question. You really do have to be able to converse with your partner. On my side, there was a great love but a lack of passion for Owen. I didn't know what to do. Neither man was right for me and I knew I was making all of us unhappy. So I decided on a tactic I often implore when in difficulty, and that is flight. I think I must have taken the old adage to heart that he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. I only had £35 in savings, so returning to England was out of the question. My money would allow me to go as far as Australia, and it seemed like a good idea at the time, so I booked a passage. When I left Wellington, there was Bob at one end of the boat saying goodbye and Owen at the other. I've never been in that situation since and don't ever want to repeat it. The crossing only took a couple of days and I remember nothing about it except my total excitement and anticipation as we manoeuvred into Sydney Harbour. In 1963, the tallest construction in Sydney was the Harbour Bridge and it looked magnificent. Today, it's almost insignificant, dwarfed by multitudinous skyscrapers and pushed out of pride of place by the Sydney Opera House. I shall never forget docking at Woolloomooloo and a port official saying, can I help you with your bags, Miss Hepburn? I like to think he meant Audrey and not Catherine, but I was incredibly flattered. At times in my life, people have been kind enough to say I bear a resemblance to Audrey Hepburn, and as she is one of my heroines, the compliment is doubly acceptable. Bob had stuffed £10 into my purse so I wasn't destitute. I was soon working as a temporary secretary, so at least I now had a small income with which to put down the deposit on rented accommodation, which I found in a leafy suburb of Sydney. It was a house in Edgecliff, not far from the harbour. In Sydney, until you get to the outer suburbs, nearly everywhere is close to the water. I shared with three other girls about whom I don't remember much, except that as Christmas approached, we made a totally daft decision to have a traditional Christmas lunch and invite guests. There was the turkey and trimmings, flaming Christmas pudding and mince pies. The temperature soared to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. We were almost passing out with the heat and dripping with sweat as we prepared the meal. We soldiered on and served up a hot meal that nobody wanted. We'd far rather have been at the beach. So, with stomachs groaning, we gathered our bathers, the Aussie word for a swimming costume, and raced off to the sea. We didn't use sun creams then, and many of the Aussies used to coat themselves in a mixture of oil and vinegar and literally fry. I take a tan quite well, but I've never burned so badly as that Christmas of 1963. The next few days were spent alternating between calamine lotion and cold tea compresses, feeling very sorry for myself and staying out of the sun. Even though I'd done no professional acting, armed with my sparse television experience, I decided to look for an agent. I really don't think you could do it now without having letters after your name, but a respected Sydney agent, Gloria Payton, took me on her books. It was at this stage that I became Jan. 
Aussies like short names and Janet was automatically shortened. I like it and it flowed better with Leeming. Owen's pet name for me was Jani, pronounced with a slight French intonation. But Australians just couldn't get their tongues around it. More often than not, it ended up as Jenny. So Jan Leeming I became. Gloria put me forward for an audition as a continuity announcer with the Australian Broadcasting Commission, ABC. Originally, they were looking for one announcer only for Sunday evenings, but they reached an impasse trying to choose between the final three and decided to use us all. I seem to recollect we were paid £10 for an evening's work, and as this was only going to be for one Sunday in three, I had to continue my temp secking. The power of television is awesome. After only a couple of Sunday appearances, I'd find people in the offices where I worked looking quizzical, and then the questions would start, until finally they sussed where they'd seen me. Gloria continued to send me to auditions, and finally I got a break in professional theatre. John Trevor was an English actor of the old school who had found his forte in adaptations of Shakespeare, edited down into versions suitable for touring with the minimum of characters, seven to be exact. The Young Elizabethan Players, or Young Lizzies, were founded in 1958 and funded by the Arts Council. The player's role was to take Shakespeare to the bush, performing in village halls, cinemas, theatres, in fact, anywhere the local arts councils could gather a quorum of enough people to make a performance worthwhile. Because everything was done on a shoestring, the local arts council members invariably put us up in their homes. We travelled in a van with our rostra, costumes, props and suitcases. The experience was a baptism of fire for me. I'd never even been camping in my native England, being your archetypal stay-at-home, don't like to get wet, and please don't ask me to rough it, person. I was now about to embark on a seven-month tour of New South Wales, covering 17,000 miles and roughing it, travelling in a van with eight folk who represented almost every category of sexual preference known in the 60s. Was I particularly ignorant, or were most of us blissfully unaware of differences? Here I was with a gloriously handsome, reputedly bisexual leader, a rampant sex maniac from Scotland who leered off to every possible good-looking female, two gay guys, a chap who appeared to be totally non-sexual, and the biggest shock of all for me, the other woman in the group, Laura. Joined by her female flatmate, Elsa, one weekend on tour, who came down to breakfast with a neck full of love bites. Our driver manager was a gentle heterosexual man who'd come on tour to get over a broken marriage and often burst into tears. Then there was me. Well, I think I'm normal, but then what's normal anymore? We were to take out two plays, The Merchant of Venice, in which I played Portia, and Macbeth, in which I was a witch. It was very hard work performing, often driving hundreds of miles to the next venue and then loading and unloading the gear. After very hard days, we had to be sociable with and entertain the hosts who were giving us beds for the night. We weren't always lucky with billeting, especially in the larger towns, and on those occasions we'd stay at motels or inns or anywhere inexpensive. I remember a couple of our billets quite vividly. One was in a town called Tumut, 
and the local vet put both of us girls up. He was good looking and had two equally handsome red setters. The vet and I got on well and some months later when I was back in Sydney he came to see me and took me out to dinner. He was a very quiet man with little conversation so unfortunately the relationship petered out otherwise I might have ended up being a vet's wife in the outback. On another occasion we were all staying at a modest hostelry in the back of beyond. The New South Wales folk have an expression back of burke which means way out in the boondocks and that's where we were. In the 60s women were not allowed into bars anywhere. Laura had a stinking cold and I needed to get her some medicinal brandy. At the bar door I stopped and waved frantically to catch the eye of a male company member. To my surprise I was invited in. They were all sitting in a dim corner talking to a person so black I could only make out his eyes and teeth. It was the first time I had encountered an Aborigine. The guys introduced us and in typical English fashion I put out my hand expecting a rough calloused hand to grip mine. It was like touching velvet. After I'd taken my companion her brandy I was allowed back into the group and spent a fascinating evening listening to our Aboriginal friend and mysterious tales of the outback. We were performing in a town called Walgett, a few miles from Lightning Ridge, centre of the Black Opal mining fields. We prevailed upon Wally, our driver, to take us there. Nothing prepared us for the landscape that met our eyes as we came over the brow of a hill. I'll never forget it. The terrain looked like the surface of the moon, with gigantic white molehills dotted all over the area. Today, it's probably ultra-sophisticated, but in the 60s, people bought a concessionary plot of ground in the Opal area and started digging. They dug down and shoveled out the potch, the matrix in which you find opals, chucking it out rather like a mole does. To say the place was primitive was an understatement. There were a few shacks with corrugated iron roofs and a bigger shack that was the bar. It did a roaring trade. The prospectors were men on their own, and after a hard and invariably fruitless day's digging, all they wanted to do was get drunk. Because we were so far from civilization, Laura and I were invited into the bar. I talked to an old prospector sporting a hat with dangling corks, the only time I ever saw this phenomenon. The corks aren't an eccentric adornment, but a very useful method of keeping away the flies. We talked about opals and this character opened a matchbox and took out a perfect solid opal about one and a half inches long and an inch wide. It was a stunning stone and he placed it in my palm. I was terrified I'd drop it. When I asked how often he found a stone like that he replied in his broad Aussie drawl, oh uh, just enough to keep me here. I reckon a stone like that at today's prices would be worth about £20,000. He also showed me an almost perfect round fire opal, so-called because they really do look like coal fires with red flames licking around inside. He wanted £30 for it, but even between us the company couldn't rustle up that amount of cash. A cheque's useless on an opal field. I've thought often of that beautiful stone, which today would probably have two noughts added on to the value.
He did give me a bit of potch that contained some opal. He could tell just by looking at the lump that it wasn't worth working. However, I took it to the opal cutter on the field and he coaxed out of it a thin opal, including its impurities, and I later had it set into a ring of silver. Everyone associates Australia with beaches, heat and eternal sunshine. Let me tell you, I've only once been colder than I was in the Motel Titania at a place called Oberon in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney. The other place was Siberia. We were all so cold we slept in our clothes in addition to having our coats on top of the bed covers. There were many venues on that tour where our breath hung in clouds of condensation and the audience were rugged up in as much clothing as they could wear. It is a country of extremes. There are desert areas where they don't see rain for years and any roads disappear under a cover of bull dust, which is a fine coating of drifting sand that makes driving incredibly difficult. It was while we were crossing one of those strips without seeing anything other than the odd cactus that we unanimously decided we needed a comfort stop. It was dusk and we'd seen nothing for hours, so Wally stopped the van, girls one side, boys the other. Yes, you've guessed it. Out of nowhere came a four-wheel drive with its headlights blazing. We must have presented a pretty sight. I don't know whether it was the strain of the tour, but the day before we were due to return to Sydney for a few days' Easter break, I had an attack of amnesia. We were performing The Merchant of Venice when suddenly I dried up completely, didn't know where I was or what I was doing, and had to be prompted and cajoled through the remainder of the play. It was a frightening experience. I got back to my rented accommodation and slept endlessly. A few days before the tour was to resume, I had a panic attack. Would I be able to remember my lines? What would I do if they didn't come back to me? The first couple of performances were difficult. I left notes for myself pinned all over anything that would take a pin and a piece of paper. But I did get through, and after a while the fear left me. I've never had an amnesia attack again, but I get so nervous before a performance. Television, stage, after dinner speaking, I get a lump in my throat that I fear I'll not be able to clear before it's my turn to speak. We were billeted with lovely people, some of whom I remained in contact with for many years. That tour left me with many sweet memories of the great open hearts, the naturalness of Aussies, the wide open space, greeting pet sheep at kitchen doors, being offered huge steaks for breakfast, which I declined, going mushrooming with a huge bucket rather than a tiny bowl, because everything is big in Australia, little children with feet barely touching the floor and with absolutely no knowledge of Shakespeare, coerced into attending performances just to make up the Arts Council quota. Endless hours before performances spent in coffee bars eating cake. During the tour, I was also getting back to Sydney on a Sunday to do my one-night stint of continuity announcing with the ABC. All the toing and froing was taking it out of me. But as our seven-month tour was nearing its end, Laura said, if you can get through a young Lizzie gig, you've got a staying power to get through anything this business, theatre, throws at you. 
Saying goodbye to my companions was a tearful experience. We'd been together through thick and thin, exhausting heat, mind-numbing cold, hard work, great companionship, and now it was over. This is the price you pay for a life in theatre, or even television for that matter. You work together on a play, a series of programmes, form close relationships in the short term, and then disperse. It's difficult to form lasting friendships because of the nature of the business, but while they are there, they are meaningful. It's become easier to accept as I've grown older, but I used to pine a great deal over the friendships that just petered out because of distance and work commitments. Returning to Sydney, Gloria told me I had an interview with a much-respected ABC drama producer for a part in Farquhar's The Recruiting Officer. Donning my smartest outfit, I caught the bus to the ABC studios at Gore Hill and was ushered up to wait in his office. I had my back to the door as Henri Safran entered. He was a very good-looking Frenchman. Taking one look at me, he didn't mince his words. You have put on the weight. End of interview. I was crestfallen and realised I was paying the price for all those hours on tour, sitting around in cafes, drinking milky coffee and eating cake. I'd gone from a size 10 to a tight 12 or a loose 14, from just under eight stones to almost 10. It is so easy to put on weight and so difficult to get it off. Diets do not work. In the short term, they fool the body, which then readjusts itself. The weight comes off. The weight goes back on. The only sure way to lose weight and keep it off is to alter your approach to food and follow a healthy regime for the whole of your life. Losing weight and staying slim is not a quick fix. After dieting unsuccessfully with the usual yo-yo of weight loss and weight gain, I eventually took several years to lose my excess weight and have watched what I eat ever since. After a while, your mind controls your eating and you'd no sooner indulge in bad food than jump off a cliff. Don't get me wrong, I do have the occasional piece of cake or chocolate. I love to drink wine with a meal, but I get on the scales every morning and if there is a weight gain, I readjust by having a very careful day or two of just salads and no wine. I find the best way to keep my body healthy and happy is not to combine protein and carbohydrate in the same meal. I eat very little meat, but lots of vegetables and fruit. A farce called Boeing Boeing had enjoyed great success in London and Australia. In early 1964, it had run and run in Sydney. Capitalising on this success, Philip Productions decided to try again a year later and were casting for a similar farce. They say that every cloud has a silver lining, and though I'd lost almost a stone in weight, I still had a fairly voluptuous figure, one of the requirements for a part in The Diplomatic Baggage. It was to be directed by a Brit and to star Jack Watling, a very well-known English actor. Auditions were held. Eloise was the French mistress of the lead character. And as I was petite, had a healthy tan and black hair, I probably looked the part more than many Australian actresses. We worked hard, had fun, opened in a heat wave at the quaint 
non-air-conditioned Palace Theatre in Pitt Street, Sydney, on Wednesday the 3rd of March, 1965. We closed on Saturday 13th of March. I like to think that we got bad reviews because the heat in the theatre was unbearable and the critics in their DJs were crotchety, but we probably were just not good enough. It was around this time I was approached by the news department of a commercial channel in Sydney, Channel 1010, required a woman newsreader. I'm sure it was more as a gimmick than due to political correctness, unheard of in those far-off days. In Australia, in the 60s, a good, clear Queen's English voice was quite sought after. You wouldn't have been able to tell the ABC announcers and newsreaders apart from those in England. I had the voice and was already known to television viewers, so I was an obvious choice. The news department was a totally male preserve and I felt honoured to be part of it, whether using me was a gimmick or not. After I came off air one evening, I was given a message asking me to phone Robin Bailey. I don't usually respond to requests to phone strangers, male or female, but I knew Robin was an actor and that he'd had an extremely long and successful run on both sides of the Atlantic a few years earlier in a production of My Fair Lady. He had directed and starred in the show, and he was back in Sydney to do the same in a production of Iris Murdoch's A Severed Head. He'd seen me on television, knew I was also an actress, and invited me to audition for the Juve lead. I got the part of Georgie Hands, the totally screwed-up mistress of Martin Lynch Gibbon, a wine merchant played by Robin. I must mention that the part of the psychoanalyst was played by Michael Blakemore, a native Australian who now enjoys a fearsome reputation as a theatre director. We opened at the end of May to super reviews, and this time not only did the show run, but we took it on tour, visiting most of the major towns in New South Wales. It was a tour again, but with a trifle more luxury than the previous year. I loved every minute of it. Not only was my part challenging, but the cast were all friends, none of the bitching one often finds in theatre companies, and Robin was such fun. He often waited for the scene where he'd gathered together his mistress and her new boyfriend, his wife and the psychoanalyst, place himself with his back to the audience and then do something to make us laugh. Robin could carry off most events with great aplomb, including the ability to keep a straight face. We couldn't. On another occasion, a door handle came away in his hand, and as it was imperative he got off stage, he exited through the fireplace with great elegance. No one in the audience even tittered. The show toured until the end of the year, and then it was back to Sydney and searching for work again. My agent, Gloria, sent me to audition for a part in a comedy film starring a famous Italian actor, Walter Chiari. It was the usual kind of scenario, the star and several women all believing they were his one and only love. To my surprise, I was given one of the girly parts. On the day that Mr Chiari arrived at Sydney Airport, we girls were there to greet him, along with a huge press contingent. I obviously displeased Walter or wasn't sexy enough. I remember wearing a fashionable straight coat in green velvet that hid my curves well, hid the curves I might otherwise have displayed. 
The next day, Gloria rang to say the offer of a part had been withdrawn, and as no contract had been signed, I didn't get a penny.